This episode is not intended to provide any legal advice. The opinions and views expressed here are for educational purposes only. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Every person thinks they would never succumb to the addictions that litter this world. None of us realize just how easy it is to fall into the trap of addiction. We assume it would never enchant us, never impact us, never kill us, but we would be wrong, deathly wrong. The following are the true accounts of just a small percentage of people who struggle with addiction issues. We are honored to share their stories. Welcome. 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 Welcome to Addicted. Well, welcome back to another episode of Addicted. On this episode, I'm excited. I have somebody who has a completely different perspective. You were a criminal defense attorney? That's right. Yes, I was. For three years, I was a practicing criminal defense attorney. I did a lot of misdemeanor felony trial work. Um, That's not my primary area of practice anymore, but I still do work in criminal defense, more on the appellate and post-conviction side now, and a lot, like it's not my full-time thing anymore. And I do, like there's research projects I'm working on um, that I don't really think necessarily pertain to the topics we're going to discuss today. But I, but yes, I do have some experience working with people that are actually currently and, you know, in the middle of the criminal justice system being accused of minor, in anything from like minor possession stuff all the way to, I mean, I've handled capital murder cases too. Oh, wow. Well, first, before we get into it, right, because it's going to be, I'm really excited about this conversation and, and interested to just learn about this facet of the criminal justice system. But why don't you introduce yourself, your name, your podcast, and then we can get into it. Sure. My name is Jennifer Taylor. And as I briefly discussed already, I uh, am a prior criminal defense attorney. I'm still a practicing attorney. I am primarily in the Austin, Texas area. Uh, so I, I practice exclusively in Texas, at least for now. And my as far as podcasting, I am the co-host of Vanished with Chris Williamson. And we cover historical disappearances, historical mysteries. And we like to bring a little legal drama into it. And we have this really cool trial by jury format that we do whenever we're covering cases. So yeah, that's what I do. Well, that's really exciting. Okay. My first question is, what's it like practicing law in Texas, especially right now with all the craziness that's going on? It's, you know, practicing law anywhere, I would imagine, is wild and can be a lot of different things. Um, There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in Texas. A lot of it doesn't really touch me and my work because currently my full-time job is I work with a lot of builders, a lot of residential builders. And so if you've ever even thought about trying to buy a house or even trying to rent a house, you probably know that the market is a bit crazy right now. And so that certainly affects my job. 
some of these other more controversial things going on in Texas don't necessarily touch my job specifically, although that uh, wasn't necessarily true when I was working criminal defense. Uh, A lot of like whatever COVID happened, for example, and the governor issued his series of executive orders. There was a time when we were really, really struggling getting our clients out on bond because the reaction to COVID in Texas was to make it more difficult to get out on bond if you have any kind of assault of history at all on your record. So there are absolutely things that can happen in the world that trickle down and affect my job in ways that leadership I don't think really intended or cares about. But yeah, it can be really frustrating having to deal with those kinds of consequences. I can imagine so. But with that being said, what made you want to get into being a lawyer? Is it something that's always been a fascination of yours? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I did debate. And so I always knew that I liked that kind of work, the critical thinking and crafting arguments and the persuasive speaking. I also, though, in high school was very, and I still am really interested in math and physics and stuff. And so initially I thought I wanted to be an engineer. And so I spent probably the first year and a half, maybe three semesters studying engineer and studying engineering in undergrad. And I liked the work just fine. Like I liked the classes just fine. I liked the math and science just fine. I actually really liked the math and science, but what happened was I started talking to engineers and I realized that I didn't, and I was never going to fit in. I, I just wasn't going to like doing that kind of work. I, w- I just knew that I would be miserable. And so instead of becoming an engineer, whenever I, I I switched my major, I ended up going to law school instead, kind of falling back on my other interest in high school. But I've really kept my interest in math and science because one of the one of my current research projects and one of the things I'm really passionate about still to this day is junk science and pseudoscience and its use in courtrooms and how it contributes to wrongful convictions. So that co- that conflation of science and law has always really been fascinating to me. That's super interesting. And and I'm super happy for you that you were able to chase a passion like that, right? Like not a whole lot of people out there get to pursue their, their passions and their interests. So kudos to you for being able to find something that you were definitely interested in. Thank you. Yes. No, I do feel very fortunate that I was able to land something that I love. That is very rare. You're right. But with that being said, so let's get into how, obviously, if somebody commits a crime, whether it be vi- violent or nonviolent, I, I kind of want to focus on the nonviolent aspect of it. But what is the proceedings? What what happens? So, like, let's say if somebody's busted for possession of any substance, from I know the charges range and the degree of charge ranges as well. But like, let's say if somebody's busted with some marijuana, what does that look like for them? So the procedure is probably not going to vary very much between different jurisdictions. So if it's something like possession, more than likely it's going to be like, for example, the you mentioned possession of marijuana. Almost always, there are obviously exceptions, but almost always something like that is going to start as a traffic stop. Um, if they do, there's a lot of fourth amendment jurisprudence and a lot of fourth amendment analysis you have to do whenever you're defending drug cases, because almost exclusively, that's going to be the legal issue, right? Did they have the legal authority to to search you? Whatever they found, were they looking where they were legally allowed to look is really, that's what the Fourth Amendment question is always going to be. As far as the arrest, if they legally find, if they are, if they legally find contraband on you, they can generally make an arrest without a warrant. Um, We don't need to go through all of the legal 
you know, why can they do that? But the general rule pretty much anywhere is you have to have a warrant, but there's a long list of exceptions when you can make a warrantless arrest in almost exclusively pretty much any jurisdiction I can think of. If you're pulled over and they find drugs in your car or any kind of contraband in your car, they're going to be able to make that arrest right there on the side of the road. No, no, no. You're good. You're good. I'm listening. You're, I'm really fascinated by what you're saying. I promise. I'm, I'm listening intently. Okay. Um, so in Texas, because the arrest was done without a warrant, um, they have to establish probable cause. We do that through a probable cause affidavit, which is simply a piece of paper that's filled out by the arresting officer that says, this is why I pulled this person over. This is this is basically why I had probable cause to arrest the person. And they, they need to outline everything that happened. It doesn't need to be super detailed. It's not going to be their offense report necessarily, which will have probably a lot more details in it, but it'll have a short narrative of why they had probable cause to make the traffic stop, why they believed they had the authority to search where they searched. They, did they smell marijuana? If it's a marijuana case, a lot of times they're relying on the smell. Other substances don't produce a smell necessarily. And so there's, you know, they have to justify though why they were searching. You can't just pull somebody over for a traffic violation and keep them on the side of the road to search their vehicle. You have to have a reason to prolong that stop if you feel like you need to, to take extra time to search the vehicle. So they're going to outline all of that in their probable cause affidavit. Uh, that will get sent to a magistrate who will then take a look at it. The magistrate will magistrate the individual, meaning they will read the a set of warnings and they will tell them what they're being charged with and they will set a bond for a simple session case. Uh, it'll probably be a really low bond, but depending on what type of contraband it is, what other facts might have been involved in the arrest, the person's criminal history, things like their age, all of that is taken into consideration. And if it's strictly nonviolent, that'll factor in as well. But if it's something like if there was violence involved or other crimes involved, all of that will be taken into consideration. The magistrate will set a bond. That generally happens without a lawyer. Now, keep in mind, a lot of these specific procedures are going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I'm really more speaking towards my experience with working with cases in Austin, Texas. So generally, when we get the case, somebody has been arrested and they can't afford their bond. And they will call a lawyer and say, can you help me get out? And so a lawyer then is able to request a bond hearing if the if a bond is set excessively high. Generally, in low-level possession cases, it's not going to be a high bond, and that's not going to be too much of an issue. And in most counties in Texas now, they're not even prosecuting low-level marijuana cases anymore. Like they're doing what's called a site and release, where they will just, they might find you, you'll get maybe a ticket or something. Even then, there's a lot of counties that aren't even doing that anymore. If your bond is set um, so high that you can't afford it, you do have the right to a hearing. And so you might have an attorney come in um, or you might get appointed an attorney and they will have, you know, it, where I practice, you don't necessarily have to have a hearing. You can sometimes just go to a judge and have, you know, kind of go to the magistrate and have, you know, kind of have the prosecutor involved and kind of have like a little informal conference about it. But Regardless, you do have the ability to maybe try to get that bond lowered and see if you can get out of jail. If it's a nonviolent crime, there's absolutely no reason, in my opinion, why you should have to be held in jail while your case is pending. It does happen, but the goal is always, from a defense attorney's perspective, is to 
reduce the amount of pretrial detention that the client has to endure while their case is pending. And so a lot of times you'll have bond conditions. If they do get out on bond, they will then say, okay, you're out on bond, but you have to take drug tests or you have to check in with a, a, a pretrial officer. Um, if it's a violent crime, they might, if it's a really violent crime, they might put a GPS device on your leg. So you're going to have rules that you have to follow while your case is pending if you're out on bond, that if you break those rules, they can revoke your bond and put you back in jail. And then from there, you'll get your first court date. Your attorney will have the opportunity to speak with the prosecutor. They will get an opportunity to look at the evidence that they have against you. Like I said, in drug cases, the primary thing that's litigated is Fourth Amendment. Did they have the authority to search your car or search your person or make the arrest? A lot of times we find that they do. It's a pretty cut and dry case and they got you dead to rights. And in those kinds of situations, depending on the person, depending on the situation, the criminal history, a lot of the ways in which we work those cases is have our client do some kind of treatment program or a class or community service, things like that, to try to negotiate something that does not result in a conviction. Um, there are some really good pretrial diversion programs where I practice that we can get clients into. And if they have more extensive criminal history or there's more involved, it might be more difficult to get them a good result, but we always do what we can. So whenever you have, if you have no real Fourth Amendment issue that you can really use to your advantage, the primary way that you you work with clients on drug cases is treatment, counseling, getting them clean, getting clean drug tests to the prosecutor, things like that. And then if it's, if oftentimes there might be a fourth amendment issue and we can get, we can get cases dismissed if there's been some wrongdoing on the part of police, which happens more often than you would think. And so a, a lot of times we're able to either set that for a hearing um, and get it dismissed via contested hearing. Or sometimes if you're in a jurisdiction with good prosecutors, you can just, you know, kind of show them the Fourth Amendment issues and get the case dismissed that way. But that's that's how a drug case works. I mean, if you're convicted of something like that, the punishment ranges vary a, quite a bit depending on what the substance is and how much of it you had and whether or not they are alleging that you are manufacturing and delivering or that if you possess with an intent to deliver or... And then we have certain other enhancement provisions in, in the law here where like if you're in a drug-free zone, for example, which would be if you're close to a school, they can enhance it, which means they can increase the punishment range. And so it can be drug drug crimes can be really simple misdemeanor cases, or they can be really serious cases that can put somebody away for a very long time, even if there's no violence alleged. My question to you after after all of that is. What was it like having to defend like a, an addict, right? Because somebody who maybe didn't have the help to or the know-how to get themselves help, but now they're potentially facing legal troubles. Do you feel like there's some way that we could help them in another way besides putting them in jail? It is incredibly difficult working with individuals that have an addiction problem. Um, sometimes my clients recognize that they have a problem. And whenever I meet them, of course, they're already kind of in the system, right? They've already been arrested. They've already, they're already dealing with legal issues. I don't tend to meet these people ahead of time, right? So sometimes I'll get clients that have kind of, maybe the arrest is a wake-up call, or maybe they already kind of knew that they needed help. 
but they never really had the resources to get it until I'm, you know, until they're in the legal system. And with those clients, it's still really hard, even if they're very willing and really want to get help because it's not something that you can just decide, I would like to get clean and I would like to go get treatment and then everything is fine. You go get treatment and everything is great. Like I've had clients go through tons and tons of work uh, to get clean, just to relapse and get in trouble again. And it's heartbreaking and it's hard, uh, but it absolutely happens. You also get clients that are in quite a bit of, I've, I've had clients in so much denial. So you, what you have to understand is that clients that just struggle with addiction, they're not only being charged with possession of the substance. Oftentimes they're getting in trouble for other things too. A really common one is DWI. So if you and I have, I've had clients that, and, and DWI can be alcohol or drug related. So you can also get in trouble for driving while high. And I've had clients that I'm representing them on drug DWIs. I'm looking, I mean, they'll draw your blood. They'll analyze what was in your system when you were driving. I'm reading them the lab reports. I'm, I'm saying, hello, I'm here to tell you that there was quite a bit of meth in your system. Right. And the, these people will still, to my face, say, I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I've, never, I've never done meth in my life. Sir, there's a video of you holding a meth pipe. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never done meth in my life. Like, you're crazy. And so that, those people are, that's, that's also difficult to handle because you're trying to help them and you're trying to defend their case. And you know that they're in denial. They're not helping you. <laughs> Right. So you're trying to help them. But what they think helping them means is believing them that they've never done anything in their life. And it's just in the reality of the situation is that that position is just not helpful. Like they're, they, they, they're blind to the problem that they find themselves in. And so what ends up happening a lot of times in those situations is the case just stays stagnant uh, for a long time. If it's a misdemeanor case, especially um, nothing really like it's really hard to move those cases forward and resolve them because what the prosecutor will want is some kind of treatment or some, or, or want him to be on probation and to be on probation, you have to check in with a probation officer and do you know, monthly drug tests and they're not going to do that. Right. Because, <laughs> because then that would, that would then show that they're still using drugs. And so there's so many different challenges with trying to help somebody that even, even somebody that wants to be helped, but certainly somebody that does not want to be helped. It is, it is really, really difficult to answer your question with, do I think the criminal, like, do I think jail helps? Obviously I do not think jail helps. Um, I don't, I don't think anyone thinks that jail helps. Um, there are some jails that do have programs, like drug programs, but overall, I am not super impressed with those. There are certain jurisdictions that really do try to 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 craft programs and specialty courts that are designed to provide treatment and to help. But I think a big drawback of that is what that usually still involves is a criminal record. And that's something that follows you around for a really long time and has effects that, I mean, even if all your I have a lot of thoughts on this because probation, in my mind, is not a slap on the wrist. It is a lot of work. It is difficult. If you mess up, you do have to go to jail. It's expensive. If you don't have a lot of money and you work and you're paid hourly and you're being asked to take off work to take these classes and to do this treatment and to check in with probation. And then on top of that, you have fees that you have to pay. They make you pay for your own drug tests. Probation is difficult and it's really easy to mess up and then get that revoked, or even if it's not revoked, have your probation extended. It can be very helpful. I have heard 
I have absolutely had clients tell me that going through the legal system turned their life around. But I really do wish that there were programs, even if they were, even if they were done in cooperation with the legal system. I wish there were programs that were done outside of it, that that way they could remain confidential, that there would be, I, I really wish there were more funding available to help people that don't have the money. Because a lot of times the reason why they're in this situation to begin with might be because insurance doesn't, doesn't cover the inpatient program that they need. Those programs are crazy expensive. If you go to rehab for 30 days, that's expensive. That is a Super ton. Of, imagine being in the hospital for 30 <laughs> days. Like that is, it's not something people can just do. Like celebrities do it, but that's not something the average person can just do. And so, yeah, I, I think that there are certainly places that really do try, but the way that, you know, we can only do so much. We only have the power to do so much. And if you're if you're a judge or you're a prosecutor, a lot of times the only tools that you have available to help the people in your community are using the tools that you have, which is placing someone on probation, putting them through a specialty court. And it's not necessarily their fault that these things aren't as effective. Um, I think it needs more systemic change. And I think that legislators, state legislators in particular, really need to be educated about what the harm, about the harm. Because even if you go through the criminal justice system and you come out without a conviction, there is a lot of collateral harm that comes from just being put through the system to you and to your family. And I think there needs to be more of an understanding with that with our legislators so that they can craft something better. I mean, I, we just, I don't know necessarily what the answer is, but I know that what's hap- what we're doing now isn't working in most cases. Right. So two questions. My first question is... You always, I already know the answer to this, but you always want to be honest with your lawyer, right? Even if that is incriminating? Absolutely. And there's no reason not to be. Your lawyer has an ethical duty of confidentiality. So your lawyer is not going to be sharing embarrassing or incriminating information with anyone outside of your legal team or anyone that you give, I mean, we, we do have young clients that might, you know, say, okay, you can share whatever with my mom or my dad. But even then, client is the client, right? I've, we've had a ton, we've had a ton of young clients that mom or dad are paying for their legal representation. And I've had to tell mom or dad, like, look, I know you're paying for this, but you're, I'm, I have a duty of confidentiality to my client. And so absolutely there's no reason not to, but there's also, I mean, I have a duty to all of my clients to represent them to the best of my ability to do what's best for them. I'm not, I'm not going to turn around and use that information against you, right? I'm not good. And I think a big fear that clients have is if I tell you that I'm I'm on meth right now. Right, right. Or if I tell you something, like I I think that clients want their lawyers to want to help them, right? That they, they want to... I think they feel like if their lawyers believe that they're innocent, that they're wrongfully accused of something, that they haven't done anything wrong, that they'll fight harder. Because, but I don't think though that that's how most defense attorneys think. I, you wouldn't become a defense attorney if you only wanted to represent people that are angels, that are good people that have never done a thing wrong in their life. Like you don't go into criminal defense if that's the only work that you want to do. And so I think, especially with people that have never been in trouble before, um, who are maybe embarrassed, I think it the instinct is just to not be truthful, to not open up to, I mean, you don't know me, you don't trust me, um, you don't understand what my ethical obligations are necessarily. And so it is hard and I understand that. But absolutely, if you were ever in trouble, you should be completely honest with your attorney. There is no reason not to. And in fact, 
it can, in fact, it, it can turn around and hurt you worse if your attorney doesn't know everything you know. What about if, so from, let's look at it from this perspective. What if drugs were legal, right? I know marijuana is slowly becoming legalized, right? But what if they legalized everything? Do you feel like that would free up maybe some more funding like you were talking about to be able to get people who need the help help? You know, I don't have statistics in front of me as far as how much money is spent prosecuting drug-only nonviolent offenses, but it has to be substantial, right? Like I said, there are there are certain offenses that don't require any kind of violent act at all and can put somebody away for a very, very long time. I think it's a difficult question to answer because I think in, in direct response, yes. I think that if we were not using resources to prosecute possession only or even manufacture and delivery. Like, I think that there is an argument to be made that manufacture and delivery is a little different. But even if we included all of that and we 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 just stopped prosecuting any of it, then yes, absolutely. The law enforcement alone, they spend tons and tons of resources trying to do drug busts, trying to do um, what they call control buys, trying to catch people that are coming into their communities and selling drugs. There's a ton of resources spent on just the enforcement alone. And then that's not even... That's not even taking into consideration the costs to prosecute and to appoint defense counsel to house them in jail. I mean, the costs are substantial, without a doubt. And so, yes, but I also think it's not necessarily as simple as stop spending money on one thing and then go spend it on another because it is more complicated than that. Drugs, there, there is a reason why certain things are illegal, even if I dis- even if I disagree with it. Maybe I, you know, maybe you don't agree. I think that there has to be some kind of criminal enforcement. I don't think that we draw the line in the right place. I think that we over-criminalize it for sure, but I think that I, I don't want to see a world either where not like no controlled substances exist, none of it is regulated, you can get anything you want on the street at any time, because keep in mind too, that would include things like narcotics, prescription drugs that should only be given to somebody with the prescription, things that can be really very dangerous, um, things that could be given to children, and so I don't think you necessarily want to see a world where there's zero regulation by the criminal courts at all. But I do think that where we are now, that started, what back? What was it, back in the 80s when they started the war on drugs? We've obviously lost that war. This is, <laughs> like, we're not... Where we are right now, it's just not working. And it's, it's, we've certainly overcriminalized it. We certainly don't need to have somebody have a long criminal record that stems from an addiction problem. And so I don't, again, it's hard because I, I don't, I, I don't have answers for you. I don't know what the solution is. I just know that what we're doing is not working. And the other thing too, I've, I've always said in my experience as, you know, just a defense attorney, before doing this job, I had always kind of taken this real like libertarian view on 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 drug enforcement of like why is any of it illegal? Like just let people do what people are going to do. Like if alcohol is going to be legal, pretty much everything should be legal. And while I haven't really necessarily changed that opinion too much, I can't there are certain substances that like for example meth there is such a huge difference between somebody that has an addiction to alcohol versus somebody that has an addiction to maybe cocaine or heroin versus somebody that has an addiction to meth. Like meth will completely destroy you. And I, so I don't think it's a bad thing to want 
our legislators to take some kind of effort to keep that off the street, to keep your loved ones from becoming addicted to it. Because once you become addicted to something, it's so hard to go back. It's so hard to go back and try. And so, yes, I think it is a noble thing to want to keep it out of the hands of people in the first place so that we don't have to go down that road. I know I'm probably rambling, but like I said, what what we're doing isn't working. <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're good. And then that's, that's, that's this type of conversation though that I want to start, right? Because I, I'm on the mindset of to legalize mostly everything, right? Like there is some, some drawbacks to it, of course. And, and you still have to prosecute from the sense of black market manufacturing and that those kinds of things, uh, obviously driving while intoxicated is, is off the table, right? And violent drug crimes are, are need to stay off the table too. But in a sense, right, uh, like you said, the war on drugs, what the fuck have we stopped, right? We are 40, 50 years into it now, 40 years, and uh, we have only gotten worse, right? So obviously, like you said, what we're doing isn't right, but there's got to be a solution. And, and you and I might not come up with that solution, right? We're kind of just two random people living in the world. Um, but it's also a... It's just something that has always intrigued me. Like, what if you can, because alcohol, in my opinion, that's, this is just my opinion. I think alcohol is, is not a fun substance. It's not something that I used to drink a lot when I was younger, but not, not so much anymore. But it destroys people's lives, right? No. Alcohol is worse than drugs. Just, it just is. I mean, I, I think that when you talk about crimes that are not possession related, almost all of, I'm not going to say all of them. A huge percentage of them can be traced back to alcohol. Domestic Drugs, violence. Absolutely domestic violence. Obviously DWI. Um, I mean, we do have, like I said, we do have drug DWI cases, but those are so rare. They're so rare, in fact, that when the legislator in Texas was writing DWI legislation, and I'm sure in other jurisdictions as well, I'm sure you've heard 0.08. That's the legal limit. Most jurisdictions adopt that number. That's the alcohol, you know, the the blood alcohol content. If you if it's above a 0.08, you're presumed intoxicated, regardless of how you might actually be feeling. There is no you can be intoxicated from any substance, even legal substances. You could be taking a prescription drug taken exactly as prescribed. If it makes you too impaired to operate a vehicle and then you try to drive to the store, you are DWI and you can get arrested and have a criminal record. So even just an irresponsible use of totally legal substances in your system can be DWI. But the legislator only took the time to have that presumptive number on alcohol. There is no and that makes it hard to process prosecute drug DWI cases because if somebody's high on meth or they're high on cocaine and then they get behind the wheel and then they get arrested because they're driving erratically a, um, a blood test is taken and you see of course you know you see evidence of a substance well what's interesting is that you can have a little bit of cocaine in your system if it doesn't make you intoxicated and then you drive there's no crime for having ingested cocaine the crimes are possession having it on you, and DWI. And so they have to prove that you had enough of this substance in your system to make you intoxicated, which is done, sure, by showing a blood test that 
shows that you had some of it. But I mean, when we try, when we take these kinds of cases to trial, it's always how much did they have? Do they take it all the time? Do they have a high tolerance for it? What about this video? Do they look like they're intoxicated on the video? It's so difficult to prove those cases because the legislator didn't bother to put a presumptive number. Because why? Because why spend all of that time trying to put that into legislation when the vast majority of DWI cases are from alcohol? And I think that tells you something about the dangers of alcohol versus the the dangers of drugs. And uh, yeah, you're right. Tons and tons of these other offenses, there's alcohol at the core of it so, so often. Many, many more times over than drugs. Right. And I mean, there, and being that you've, you, you've probably defended people in cases, which obviously I'm not asking you to divulge details, right? Because of confidentiality. But I mean, you've probably defended more cases where there was an accident or somebody got hurt where alcohol was involved than where there were drugs, you know, whether it be, you know, cocaine, meth, or, you know, any kind of substances like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because, and that's the thing, alcohol is legal. Alcohol is easy to get. It's socially acceptable. It's socially acceptable. Absolutely. And it is one of those things where even if you do have a problem, and even if it's obvious to everyone around you that you have a problem, the fact that it is so socially acceptable, I think makes it harder to seek treatment and um, to actually accept that you have a problem, right? I mean, and this is just kind of more speaking from my experience rather than as an attorney, but if you have if you have an addiction to alcohol and you're trying to quit using alcohol, have you ever been out and you're saying, I don't want to drink and everyone is drinking and they're looking at you like, what's wrong with you? You know, that is so hard. It's really, if you think about it, it's really not that hard socially to say, no, thank you. I would not like any meth today, right? I mean, I mean... <laughs> I'm no, thank you. No cocaine for me. No, no, that was last week, not this week. I don't mean to minimize how difficult it is for people that maybe are in those circles that where drug use is heavy and it it can be. I don't mean to minimize how difficult it is to get clean, but really, when you think about it, everywhere you go, even work parties, I mean, we'll have like Christmas parties with our offices and our jobs that will be at restaurants and they'll have alcohol at parties. They have, and I had alcohol at my wedding, right? Like it's, I think that we're getting better at being more accepting of people that just choose not to drink and asking no questions about it. Um, But I think that a lot of this too is not just a systemic legal issue. It's a societal issue. Like if if you really want to combat alcohol addiction, then we really need to look at ourselves and see how much we're incorporating alcohol use into our social events and just what it means to be normal. No, and I agree with that 100%, right? So I used to drink a lot like when I was underage before I became 21. And then once I hit 21, probably into my, I would say 22, 23, 24, I was like, what the fuck am I doing, dude? Like, this is not, this isn't fun. You know, like you lose a day, the next day you feel like crap. You don't, you don't feel like doing anything. And I'm not knocking people who drink, but over the years, I, I've I've been in that situation and that awkward social situation where I'm just like, no, I don't drink. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, just, it's just not my thing. Like, I don't, I just choose not to drink. And I, more often than not, I get that look of like, oh my God, you're crazy. Why don't you drink? And it's like, cause I just don't drink. I would rather, I would rather go get high, you know, smoking weed than drink. I, I can you get a six hour high and then 
you're fine. Not that I do, but it's one of those things that I would, if it was more socially acceptable to go smoke a joint, that's what I would rather do than than to get drunk. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that a lot of people are like that and we just don't see it because it is really difficult to, like you said, function in society and admit that you don't drink alcohol. It's it's interesting because I know lots of people that don't smoke weed. I know lots of people that don't want to that don't want that choose never to partake in marijuana. And even though I know also a lot like it's becoming more and more socially acceptable and more and more people I know do smoke marijuana. It, I've never once had somebody seen somebody say I don't smoke marijuana, I don't want to partake and have everybody else look at them like they're crazy. Like it's just never been maybe you've had different experiences, but I've never seen someone stigmatized for not wanting to smoke marijuana. Whereas I often have, I often, like my, my husband doesn't drink. I have friends who don't drink. And so it's, it's weird. They always have to explain themselves. Like, why are you not drinking? Because I just don't want to. Are you sure? Why don't you try this? Do you just not like it? Like, do you, or, are you, or do you have, are you pregnant? Like what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That's a, that's a very valid point that I've never thought about. And like, as you said that, and I'm thinking about it, it's like, like I, I haven't smoked in years, right? But it's one of those things that I'm like, I never chastise somebody for not wanting to, right? Because okay, cool, whatever. Like it's not a big deal. But you're you're absolutely right. Like there is less stigmatization for people to say no to marijuana than there is to alcohol. And that's a definitely a societal level problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how you fix that either. But I do think that we're slowly getting better about it. Um, for example, I had to do a lot of Christmas dinners and Christmas parties for, you know, various, like my job and organizations and things. And so I don't go out to eat a lot um, at like fancier places. But whenever I was doing this in, you know, December, I did notice that I would look at a cocktail menu and a lot of places are offering mocktails. So things that, that don't have alcohol in them, mixed drinks that don't have alcohol in them. And I've, I've never noticed that before. And maybe it's because I'm in Austin. Uh, maybe it's an Austin thing. I don't know. But I, at least from my perspective, it seems like it's slowly becoming more acceptable for people to just say no to alcohol and have no questions asked by anybody. And I like that. I hope that that trend continues. So has Texas legalized marijuana yet? No. So what is going on in Texas is most counties have decriminalized it, but our governor is pissed about that. Um, so I guess a primer on how laws are passed and enforced. The state legislator will pass the laws, and they're the ones that get to say what is and is not legal. But a county prosecutor is the one that gets to choose what laws to enforce. They have what's called prosecutorial discretion, and that is written into our state constitution, but most jurisdictions, I think, in practice are very similar. Um, But it's actually enshrined in our state constitution that the executive branch does not get to choose who to arrest and prosecute. We even had a really contentious um, legal case because Ken Paxton, the AG, the attorney general here, wanted to prosecute somebody that he had he had accused someone of... It was... I'm trying to remember the facts of the case. It has nothing to do with drugs. It was more about... Um, 
I think somebody had lied on their, uh, they had run for sheriff and they were elected sheriff of some county and there were financial disclosures that they lied about. It was, it was a really minor case of like alleged election fraud. Um, but the local prosecutors didn't want to prosecute. And so then Ken Paxton's office wanted to prosecute. And it became this really contentious legal battle that was caught up in the appeals on whether or not our attorney general has the authority to choose who to prosecute and to initiate prosecutions. And it's a te- it was obviously a test case because if you know anything about what's going on in the news, like you probably know that there are some states that think that Democrats are trying to, you know, rig all of the elections, right? And so there's a lot of there's a lot of election, you know, legislation being passed in some red states. And so that's what this was. This was an incident that happened before all of that started. It was like I said, it was a really minor thing that really didn't have anything to do with any of the, you know, the recent major elections. Um, but I think what was happening was the AG's office had wanted to kind of test whether or not our courts would let him initiate a prosecution over what he termed election fraud when the local prosecutors declined to. And at the end of the day, our high court said, no, under Texas constitutional law, the executive branch in Austin does not have the authority to initiate prosecution. Um, Only the local county attorneys and district attorneys have the authority to initiate prosecution. And of course, Kim Paxton got all upset about that and he started tweeting about it. And it became, it was a really big deal a few months ago here. Uh, But what that means for things like marijuana is that the vast majority of counties don't enforce those laws, even though they're still on the books. And Abbott can't do anything about it. He can make speeches and he can tweet and he can say, Marijuana is still illegal in Texas, but at the end of the day, if your local county doesn't want to enforce those laws, then you're not going to get arrested for it. Now, I I will say that in large enough quantities, they are still enforcing it. Of course. I'm more talking about the everyday use. Yeah, somebody is pulled over with a small amount. More than likely, that's not going to get prosecuted. You also have to understand with Texas that we're a very diverse state. So we do have places that are blue, very blue. We have places that are very red. And so there are some especially rural counties that will still prosecute. So I'm speaking in generalizations. The vast majority of our counties aren't. And even if they are, they are not prosecuting it as um, hard as they used to. Like they may, they may make the arrest, but then dismiss it um, right off the bat, or they may make you, you know, take a class before dismissing it. Um, But it is certainly not the same landscape as it was 10 years ago. Um, when, I mean, I, I still remember hearing stories of prosecutors trying cases of possession of TH, THC pins, basically saying this is a, this is, this is a gateway to meth and this is a gateway to this and that. And that was not that long ago. And so the, it, it, things are changing even in more conservative counties and, uh, governors, not happy about that at all. But we have a kind of a unique separation of powers set up here that I, I don't think is necessarily replicated in other states. Right. And Texas is one of those, like California, New York, it's kind of like an oddball, you know what I mean? We, have, we do things our own way. Yeah. Texas is very unique in a lot of ways. Have you ever had a defendant potentially where it becomes like a federal case, whether it be drug possession or something else? Like, what does that look like? So we have, but we haven't had a ton of them. 
So I can't really speak too much on it. I'm not licensed to practice in federal court. We have had clients that have had dealings with federal prosecutors. We usually bring in other counsel. Actually, I say usually. We bring in other counsel. (laughs) to handle those um because uh i'm i'm just i think my boss where i was working before was licensed in federal court so he could have i guess theoretically done it on his own but that wasn't our primary practice area and i think the reason why he was licensed in federal court really had more to do with the fact that we were handling dwis on fort hood um so that was really the only reason i mean it's not the only reason but so to answer your question yes i have had some minimal experience with that but not really enough to where i i could tell you the ins and outs of how federal prosecutions work the way that i could talk about state prosecutions but the feds generally will get involved from my understanding when there's large quantities um crossing state lines and so we're not talking about possession cases right we're talking about massive organizations where drugs are being moved into the country. They're being moved throughout the country. Usually lots of people are involved. I mean, drug distribution is, it works the same as any kind, any other kind of organization, any other kind of company. You've got tons of people involved and for it to be successful, as successful as it has been, right? You you have people that are really good at running the business and running the organization. And so when you get the DEA involved, that's that's usually kind of what you're going after is is big fish. Um, not uh, they, they don't care about the dude smoking marijuana behind the mall, right? <laughs> or even the guy dude smoking meth behind the mall, right? They don't care about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's this it's so so fascinating. And like what about like as far as like the investigation process? Do you get we're talking maybe outside of a uh, drug possession or drug case, but do you get some kind of report as a defense attorney, like what their investigation was about, like all the evidence? Like, how does that work? Yeah, you absolutely get all of the evidence. We are entitled to all of the evidence. So um, I guess some legal background on that. Constitutionally, as a matter of constitutional right, we are entitled to what's called Brady evidence, which means anything that's exculpatory and material. So I guess the Constitution says that we're entitled to certain things. Anything that might exonerate our client, they have to give us. Texas is one of those states, and there are several states that do this. They have what's called an open file policy. And so ours actually stemmed from, it's called, we call it the Michael Morton Act because it was passed after Michael Morton was exonerated after spending 25 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And after he was released in 2013, there was an overhaul of our discovery laws in Texas resulting in Code of Criminal Procedure 3914, which we call the Michael Morton Act. And under the Michael Morton Act, we're entitled to everything, your entire file. The only thing we're not entitled to is what we're, is what's called work product, and work product means attorney notes. So if an attorney is trying to work on the case and they're you know they're making their own notes, their own kind of confidential work product, then we're not entitled to that. Like I'm not entitled to know what the prosecutor thinks about something, and so I'm not entitled to his or her notes or his confidential communications with her expert, anything like that. But I am entitled to the entire case file. I am entitled to offense reports. I am entitled to photographs. I am entitled to lab testing. I'm, I'm entitled to pretty much everything that they have. So yeah, I will get to see all of that stuff. That is so freaking cool. What is your favorite part about your job? And I know I, I know you're not a, a criminal defense attorney, but what's your favorite part about your job? My favorite part is 
there was so much of it that I loved. I really loved being able to work with people. One of the reasons why I wanted to do defense work as opposed to working for the state, I don't, I don't have any, you know, despite some of the ideologically, I've kind of entrenched myself more and more on like the defense side. But at the end of the day, like I think good prosecutors are important. I, I've, I've loved a lot of the prosecutors that I've worked with. There's a lot of really great prosecutors offices. I in no way mean to disparage prosecutors whenever I sometimes speak about these issues. I don't think I could ever be a prosecutor though. And a big reason for that is not an ideological one, but it is because I want to feel like a work that I'm doing benefits somebody. And not that a prosecutor's work or a law enforcement officer's work doesn't benefit society as a whole if done right and done ethically. But I just, I've always really liked this feeling of the work that I am doing has made somebody's life better. I've always, my favorite part, I mean, there's so, so much that stressed me out as a defense attorney. There were days, weeks, months even, where you just, you're just so burned out and and it, it gets really, really difficult. But the one thing that always really felt like it made it worth it was getting a text from a client or getting a phone call from a client's mom, even with a really small, like, thank you for everything you've done. You have no idea how much you've changed our lives, how much you've helped. Those little moments really made everything worth it for me, putting in all of that work. And there's a lot of times when you feel I mean, it is a very, what's the right word? There's a lot of ungrateful clients. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stigma with, Entitlement. you know, well that, um, but even amongst like friends and family, like, you know, whenever I, I, I still remember whenever I first met my husband and being introduced to his family and he was like, she's a criminal defense attorney and the jokes, right? Like, Oh, you help bad guys get off. Like, okay, it's funny. All right. But there's a lot of like, um, dismissiveness about what you do. And it, it's really nice to really feel the effects of what you've done and know that the hard work that you're putting into is making someone's life better. That's what I got out of being a criminal defense attorney is being able to actually feel like I've, I've helped somebody in even just a really small way. Do you think those jokes maybe comes from that, from society telling us right through media that the bad guy's always guilty, so you're kind of the face, the name to blame as to why that quote unquote criminal got off? I think so. I think it also just comes from a misunderstanding or really a lack of any kind of insight on how our criminal justice system actually works, because it's not just about guilt or innocence. Because sure, I've had plenty of clients that I think are wrongfully accused of something. I've had plenty of clients that I thought were actually innocent. I've done work for the Innocence Project. So I have, and there have been many, many times when I'm fighting for somebody that I feel ha is innocent. And there, there is, you know, you do get something out of, you know, I, I feel like I'm fighting the good fight. You know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm fighting the bad guy, right? In all honesty, the vast majority of your clients, if you're going to do criminal defense work, are not great people or they're fallen on really hard times, or they've done things that are not great. And I mean, that's going to be most of your clients. And what you have to understand and what I, what I tell people all the time is that it's not always about getting somebody off when they've done something bad or they've broken the law. Sometimes the law is unjust. Sometimes they deserve something, but what the state wants to throw at them is not what they deserve. Sometimes there's mitigating factors that no one has taken into consideration. Sometimes, I mean, th sometimes there are other people involved. 
that are probably more culpable. I mean, there are so many different things that could be going on in a situation that to look at it from the outside looking in or it's just black and white is not really, it's, it's, it's oversimplifying it. And I don't know. I, I know that it's cliche to say, well, I'm protecting your constitutional rights. And before I became a defense attorney, I would say that all the time. Like I would be in law school saying that all the time. And, you know, it's it's easy to say it and, and, and then turn around and be like, yeah, but if the person, you know, assaulted somebody, then they should be in jail, right? Like, okay. Like it's it's easy to say, but once you're in it, those words really start to really mean something because I truly believe that we as a society should be judged on how we treat the lowest of us. And if somebody's accused of something horrible, and I know we're moving past nonviolent drug offenses, I've represented people that have done unthinkable things, horrible things. And us as a society have an obligation to treat those people with the same amount of respect and to give them all of their rights, their due process, everything. If we can't do that with those people, then we as a society don't deserve to say that we've punished somebody. Like we don't get to be the good guy and say, I have righted a wrong if you didn't do it right. I don't think that, I don't, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I just, you know, it's really easy. It's really, really easy to say, I have punished a bad person. I have vanquished the evil. Like that is easy to do. It is easy to be seen as the good guy when you're doing that. It is a lot harder to treat those people as humans and treat them with respect. And I think when you can do that, then you are an enlightened society. Right. And I think we still have a long way to go. I think that on paper, our laws are, you know, this is what it says. But if you've ever had to defend somebody that has committed atrocities, you will know that putting that in practice isn't is a lot harder, a lot harder. What kind of emotional I, I know we're kind of off topic, but I am just so fascinated with. I derailed you. I am so sorry. No, no I am. I. For one, I just want to tell you, I am absolutely loving this conversation. You are a fascinating human being and you're so open and it just makes it easy to talk to. So thank you for that. But what's the emotional toll like knowing that you have somebody who's guilty? Like that has to weigh on you, right? Yeah. So it depends on what they're guilty of. And so I'm assuming when you're asking that question, you mean... How hard is it to stand next to somebody who has been accused of possession of bucket loads of child pornography or harming children or murder, right? You know, it's, I think that over time when you do the work, it's really easy to kind of separate the emotion from the work. It's just something that kind of happens over time, you know, going through law school. And then I clerked for a little while. And whenever I clerked, I did exclusively criminal cases. And so you just, something in your brain just gets used to reading about awful things and seeing gruesome photos and turning something off in your brain that responds emotionally to that. And that's not to say that I don't ever get emotional or that these things are not hard because that is not true at all. I have absolutely had clients that I hated, like hated, like couldn't stand to be in the same room, would sometimes try to make excuses to have my boss handle a meeting with them. And so, yeah, of course it gets hard. But something that I always think about too is I'll just give you, um, without giving away too many 
you know, like confidential information, identifying information. But I mean, just as an example, there was a particular client that I can think of that I could not and I can't stand him, you know, prior client, not a client anymore, but probably one of the worst ones I ever had. It wasn't just him, right? That was being affected by everything that was going on, right? You had, I mean, and he had several victims and it is difficult. You know, you, you gotta, you know, read their witness statements. You gotta, you know, you gotta read what happened to them. You have to, you know, work on the case and, and, and look at everything from a completely detached standpoint. And then we also had what, cause this was, this was a sexual related crime and the guy that we were representing was fairly young. I mean, he was an adult, but he was fairly young. And so he is one of those that kind of had his parents really involved. And I, I had to watch kind of as the case progressed, his parents initially very much believed in his innocence. They believed that the accusations that were coming out were there's no way that they could be true. Um, and I think slowly over time, as more and more evidence came in, they kind of slowly came to understand the reality of what their child had done. And watching this, I mean, she, the mother, I mean, if you don't, I don't know if you have kids, but, you know, I've always kind of wondered how I would react if one of my children had done something unthinkable. And, she, and, and I would have, she would come into our office, his mother. She would come into our office just in tears because she had lost everybody. You know, she couldn't go to church anymore. She couldn't go grocery shopping anymore. They had to move. She, her, the rest of her family, her other children, like they, like it wasn't just that they were having to deal with their son being in jail. It wasn't just that they were having, I mean, they had to, I mean, the, just the legal expenses and the expenses for just everything else that he had going on, it cost them a ton of money. It was a very, it was really, really sh- socially stigmatizing as well. They lost contact with family. I mean, it ruined their lives and they were having to deal with this as well. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was really hard. Did that make me feel any better about representing this guy and, and trying to help this guy? No, but I mean, it was always something that I tried to remember too, is that like, I'm doing everything that I can, not only because us as a society needs to, but because there are other innocent people as well on this side of it too, that are, that that really need our help and really need to know that we're doing everything that we can for her family. It's just tough. It's just tough all the way around. And I will tell you that at the end of the day, this, uh, this kid is probably not going to get out of prison for a very long time. Right. You know, and, and that's the thing too, is I don't think if, if you have somebody that's the evidence is there and the prosecutors are doing their job and the police are doing their job. You can do your job as well as any other defense lawyer can. And hopefully if the system is working, the right result is going to occur, which means that somebody is, you know, somebody's going to be put away and the community will be safe. Right. And I think that that's the other thing that helps me sleep at night too, is that I can do my job, right? If I'm doing my job and somebody who is actually dangerous and actually guilty gets let out and gets off, as people like to say, I actually do believe this. That is not my fault. I did my job. If that person didn't get, if that person didn't get convicted, then that probably means that your investigators fuck something up. Or you as a prosecutor fuck something up. If you're doing something illegal, if you are cutting corners, if you are being shady, if you are bringing a case to trial where you don't have enough evidence, that's not on me. That's me doing my job to make sure you can't do the same thing to an innocent person down the line. And so I truly 
don't have any problem sleeping at night if I feel, even if I 100% feel like somebody did something wrong and got away with it, I feel like that is what is supposed to happen if the state doesn't do their job. And I have absolutely no problem going to sleep at night when those things happen. I just don't. So I, that's, that's fucking, how I feel about it. Boom. <laughs> That is a statement <laughs> and a half right there. And and you know what? You're right. There my my next question, my actually my last question was gonna be about how do we break the stigma around the legal system, right? Because there's a lot of people who you, you get the 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 outcry and the outrage and rightfully so in a lot of cases, right? But you also get the unjustified outrage and you get defense attorneys and judges and such getting attacked or slandered or, you know, all these things. But it's one of those things that you, you're, you're absolutely right in the sense that what happens if an innocent person gets accused of this, of something, but because we've already set the precedent that we're going to just throw everybody in jail, then that person just kind of gets swept up right up there with them, right? Yeah. And I think that a big part of helping shape how the public reacts to an arrest or how the public feels about what's going on. I think that a really big part of that is media coverage of high profile cases or even of local cases. You know, we all follow, or at least I do, you follow your local newspaper from your hometown and every couple of days they'll be like, here are the mugshots of everyone that was arrested over the weekend, right? Like this is something that news people love to do, especially local ones. You know, when you're talking about high profile cases or bigger cases and you get a headline that just says, you know, so-and-so arrested for blah, 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 and they have a, a mugshot and it's not, you might read the article and lower down, it'll be like, oh, and by the way, they're innocent until proven guilty, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's not what the headline says. That's not why you wrote the article. You're not going to say that in order to get clicks. You're not going to write a headline that says this person is presumed innocent, but somebody thinks he might be, you know, like, you're not going to put nuance in the headline. Because so that's not what I, sells. <laughs> that's not how media works. And I have I remember in law school we did a, a presentation. I so I helped organize a presentation where we had some reporters come in and give a talk over how, coverage of high profile criminal cases and high profile lawsuits and things like that. And and it was this it was really cool. It was like a media and law event. And and so we had some reporters come in to answer questions from law students. And one of our law professors was there and uh, he raised his hand to ask a question. And he's like, do you ever consider that some of the things that you print, not you necessarily, but does anyone in your profession ever consider the effects on a defendant when you print certain things? And the answer was pretty universally, no, we don't. That's not our job. It's not our job to think of that. It is our job to print the news. And a lot of these journalists that are writing about these things don't have a background in criminal justice. Some of them do. Some of them are really good. Um, but a lot of them don't. They don't have a background in criminal justice. They have a background in crime reporting, which means that they're a journalist and their background is in journalism. And at some point early in their career, they were assigned to the crime beat. And so they've been at a lot of court hearings. But I think a big part of our understanding, our being like, as a society, like our understanding of what goes on in court, com it comes from media, it comes from social media, it comes from news. And if you don't know anyone that's ever done work 
there, or you've never been able to actually sit down and talk about these issues with somebody who is a judge or is a lawyer, or even somebody that's been through the system themselves. If you know somebody that's been arrested or has ever been on probation for something, instead of looking at that as something that is you shouldn't ever talk about or that makes them less, maybe ask them what that experience was like. Because I think you'd be surprised that it's not what we think it is. But yeah, I think I don't necessarily blame people for their biases and their stereotypes. I I just think that most people are really, really uninformed, which is really sad because there is a reason why so many of our Bill of Rights pertain to the to the rights of a defendant, the rights of an accused. And I think that it's a really sad situation that most Americans don't know what their rights are. They don't know what goes on in courts. These are things that affect them, whether they think it does or not. And I do wish more people would understand what's going on. I do wish there were more resources that were designed for lay people to teach people what goes on because a lot of these judges are elected. At least here, all of our judges are elected. Our DAs are elected. And these are the people that are running the system. And if you don't know what's going on, right, then you don't care enough to go out and vote whenever it's time to go vote. And so I think for a lot of reasons, people should be more informed about what's going on. But I also don't necessarily blame people for not seeking out that information on their own when they don't necessarily know that they should, you know? Right. 100%. And that's the, that's the problem though, right? Is that, like you said, in when you mentioned the reporters, right? Everybody gets their information from what? Social media, whatever, whatever they're trusted. And I, I, I put trusted in quotes, right? News sources, that's what they go with, right? Yeah. And I mean, or like Twitter or, I mean, Twitter is not necessarily a place for nuance. It's not a place where people can have discussions um, with any kind of substance, right? It's it's a place for people to put their hot takes. And, you know, if it's, it's I think my circle of people is different because I, I listen to a lot of true crime, as I'm sure you do too. And a lot of my friends, a lot of my friends listen to true crime or like watch documentaries. And so even the lay people in my life are interested. There's an interest there to learn more. And so it's easy, I think, for for, from my perspective, some of my people, I think it's different with them. But something that we always have to remember is that society as a whole, like if you're not interested in this, then you they really don't know anything about it. And that is sometimes hard for me to remember because I'm so immersed in it because it's my job. And because even outside of my job, I have a group of friends where we're like all going to crime con together or whatever. And so like I, I take for granted that I'm surrounded by people that do know the importance of these things and they do understand the nuance. And they do understand why certain things matter. But it's it's really easy to forget that if you just go on, you know, go on Twitter or go on Facebook. And if I was to start tweeting about like, you know, certain things in my job, people would be like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, which is why um, I had all, you know, like anytime I got a victory in court, like not, you know, if we if we want a trial, I was always very careful not to necessarily go brag, you know, back home to my family that I just got a not guilty in a DWI case because what they're going to immediately be like is, oh, so you got a drunk driver off. Good job. Right. Like they're not seeing what I saw. They're not, you know, they don't know why the state couldn't prove their case. They don't know why I'm proud of the work that I did. They hear drunk driver did not get punished for what he did or what she did. And so that stigma is very much still there. But yeah, I, I think that it's just one of those things where like there's really isn't a solution, right? It's a matter of interest. If you're not interested in learning something and you're not interested in understanding it, then you're 
going to always be perfectly happy to just consume whatever headlines are there and not look further. And to a certain, like you can blame media, you can blame journalism, but to a certain extent, society has a responsibility and you as a citizen has a responsibility to be informed, especially when it comes time to elect judges and district attorneys. And just unfortunately, most people don't do that. Most people don't care enough. Right. And for, again, for anybody who's listening to this point, we are not offering any legal advice. This is not covered by any kind of protections, (laughs) right? But the one biggest thing that I see is that uh, people don't do their own research, right? And that's not just pertaining to law, right? That's pertaining to everything, right? They don't, they don't do their research. They get this image or, or they see something in their head and they're like, okay, that's the way to do it instead of doing their own research. That's what I don't understand why people don't take the time to actually research anything. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, they want to, I think a lot of it comes from their own personal biases. If you believe something and you're given some information that perpetuates that belief, there is no incentive to dig deeper and look further. And so in the context of what we're talking about today, if somebody is very pro-law enforcement and they're very anti-expanding rights for the accused, or I mean, I know that there's there are certain areas of the country where there are controversial pieces of legislation or there are topics that are very current. I don't know if it's still, I know for a while last year, New York was talking about bail reform. I don't know if that's still a hot topic in places, but I know, you know, whenever COVID started happened, started happening, like I said, at the the top of this conversation, Governor Abbott, he passed, I say pass is probably the wrong word, but he signed his executive orders basically saying, you know, certain defendants uh, just you don't get out on personal bond, you know, and we can we can talk about bail issues all day long. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now. But the point is, when these things started happening, and when they entered mainstream news, and everyone was, you know, having conversations about it, if you already have a very deeply entrenched belief that criminals are dangerous and don't need to be let out pre-trial and we need to strengthen our law enforcement like if these if this is your ideology and you already think this then you are not going to dig deeper at all and actually figure out what the issues are you're not going to try to figure out why there are groups of people advocating for bail reform like you just don't you're you're just not going to and it's sad but not very many people are going to sit here and say I would like to try to truly understand the issues on the other side and 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 try to prove myself wrong basically. You're you're going to yeah, I don't I'm I'm not I'm going to stop. But <laughs> I've made my point, I think. It's, I've made my point. It's one of those things like you said, they have their own biases, right? So they only look for the information that justifies who they are or what they are or what their ideologies are, right? Instead of standing neutral and looking at it from all directions, they only look left or right, up, down, whatever way they're already set in, that's the way that they're looking. Right. And when it comes to something like criminal justice reform or bail reform or any of these other issues that make it to uh, topics of conversation, it's really easy if you don't know anything about what's going on to take the moral high ground in your mind by saying, I am not going to side with people that have been accused of violence against women, or I am not going to side with people that have been accused of sexual offenses. It is a really difficult position to find yourself in if, for example, you're 
your passion is advocating for deregistration of sex offenders, right? If you're somebody like me that believes that our sex offender registration list is too wide and encompasses too many people and that we're monitoring too many people and you want to advocate for reform, all people see is you're advocating for sex offenders. And it's really easy to just take the moral high ground without ever scratching the surface of this issue. And I think that that is, uh, that's, that's why those of us on the criminal defense side have such an uphill battle is because the optics, when you don't actually look at what is going on, it's really, really easy to just villainize you and your clients and, and that's it. Right. And that's, uh, that's another valid point too, right? Is like, I know I've never known anyone personally, but I know that you can get on the sex offender registry by pissing at a school after hours, right? But why are they a sex offender? Even though there was no kids, they weren't like flashing the kids, right? But they can still be charged as one. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's another thing too, that the, you know, the laws vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and it's, it's just that's a whole other episode in and of itself, um, as many things that we've touched on are. Um, but, but, but yes, no, you are absolutely right in that there are, I think most people, when they think of the sex offender registry, they think we're trying to monitor violent, dangerous people. And I have a right to know, you know, where those people are so that I can keep my children safe. And I think if you actually look at who's on the registry and what they've been accused of, I think anyone that takes a hard look at it will, begin to realize that we're not just monitoring people that are dangerous. We're monitoring lots and lots of people that don't need to be on that list. Bad enough that they have a criminal conviction. It's bad enough that somebody, you know, can run a background check and find this information. It's bad enough that they're going to have a hard time getting a job. Now they're on a very public list. And there are many jurisdictions that limit where you can live if you're on that list. If you live in a small town, and again, I'm sorry, we're I'm railroading this whole episode again. But if you live in a small town and you're on the sex offender registry list and you have laws in your jurisdiction that say you can't live within so many feet of a school or a park or a daycare center, if you're on the list, guess what? You just got kicked out of town because there's no place in town where you can live. And if your roots are there, your parents are there, your only support system is there, what are you going to do? So yeah, again, that has nothing to do with addiction. Um, and I've derailed you once again. <laughs> so now all of your listeners are going to think you could, you know, that you consort with uh, people that advocate for sex offenders. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I... Uh, we, we are not video calling, but I wish you could see my face cause I'm smiling. I am seriously like just, I'm just, I'm loving the conversation because it, there's so many valid points that you've made and I can't thank you enough for just, you know, letting it out there. I mean, it's obvious that you're very grounded in what you think and what you believe and, and you're not afraid of that. And, and I appreciate the honesty. It's, it's, it's refreshing. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. This has been fun. But with that being said, Jennifer, we've already railroaded it, I don't know, 85 times. So Sorry, I'm you- <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> why don't you plug your podcast and we'll get out of here. So once again, I am the co-host of Vanished, Chris Williamson, and I cover historical disappearances, historical mysteries. We have done a really cool like trial by jury mock trial on most of our cases where we take our favorite theory of what happened or who done it and we did a little mock trial together. We did that for 
um, Amelia Earhart way back in 2019. We actually did five trials on the Amelia Earhart case. And uh, Chris has a book coming out that has all of that transcribed. So if you don't want to actually listen to the show, you can pretty soon read it in book form. And Chris and I are going to be at the Amelia Earhart Festival on July 16th. I feel like you should remember this. I, it's a, it's whatever that Saturday is, and I'm pretty sure it's the 16th. Um, we will be at the Amelia Earhart Festival signing books and talking about Amelia Earhart. And then later on this year, we will be premiering season three, where I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about what topics we're going to cover yet, but I'm going to do it anyway. We're going to open with the Zodiac Killer. Ooh, I'm definitely excited about that. Jennifer, I, I seriously, I can't thank you enough for coming on, sharing your perspectives on, on not just drug offenses, addiction, just everything that you shared today. I appreciate you coming on and I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for having me again. We leave you now with this episode of Addicted. Just remember, there are many people out there struggling with addiction issues And for every one person who finds sobriety, there are millions out there who have not overcome this demon known as addiction. Thank you for listening to Addicted.